Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. Welcome to our Shabbat study of the Torah. And this Sabbath, we are at the portion called Vayashev, and we are in chapter 37 of the book of Genesis. In the previous Shabbats, we've looked at the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now things are going to shift to the sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel, and in particular, it's going to focus in on one of his sons called Joseph. This was the firstborn of Rachel, his beloved, and we're going to have a very fascinating story about him and about his rejection by his brethren, him going down to Egypt, him being raised up to be the viceroy of Egypt, and, and the, all of the events that will be taking place from that. And we're going to find out that God purposed this in a very specific and special way, not only to preserve the life of Jacob and his family, but also it is a foreshadowing of the Messiah, the whole concept of how the Messiah is to come and ultimately how he's going to rule over the world. It's all pictured in the person of Joseph. This is a very clear passage that's full of what we call many remez levels. Uh, into the passage. So with that introduction, let me take you to chapter 37, beginning at verse 1. It says, Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan, and these are the records of the generations of Jacob. Now you know anytime it talks about the generations like in Toledot, these are the generations of Isaac. It doesn't talk about Isaac, and we're not going to talk about Jacob. We're going to talk about the offspring of them. And so it immediately says, verse 2, Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth. And along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, um, and by the way, those were Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. He was a tattletale. And he exposed their misdeeds. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a very colored tunic. Now right off the bat, there's probably some people going to go say, well, that wasn't very right on Jacob to make of all of his sons to make one son his favored son. Well, it says there's reasons for that. Joseph was the firstborn of Rachel his beloved, and, and he loved Rachel, and this is the son that came from that union. She also had another son, Benjamin, which we'll find out in more of the story that will be involved with Joseph. Um, and, and on top of that, uh, Joseph was one of the last sons uh, to be uh, fathered by Jacob, other than Benjamin himself, and so he considered him to be the son of his old age. Now, I'm not sure exactly what, how old he was at the time, uh, but uh, he, was, he considered himself to be older at that point, and so he revered that son because of the love of his mother and so forth, and apparently it became obvious that he really loved that son and favored him over the other sons, uh, which probably produced a lot of resentment you know, within the house. And that's what will become very apparent here. And uh, it says, verse 4, And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, and they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. You ever had a conflict with someone in your family where you just, you don't even talk to each other anymore? That's hatred. That's an example of hatred. I don't care what your excuse is. You know, I don't care that, ja that Jacob did something inappropriate or that Joseph tattled on them. I don't care what it is. This hatred is not valid. It's inappropriate. And these brothers are hating him, and it's manifested by refusing to speak uh, with him on friendly terms. Verse 5, Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Boy, of all the atmosphere there is for jo Joseph to now come and share with them, hey, by the way, God talked to me through a dream. I've got a very fascinating dream. Let me, 
you know, now he's saying not only is he the favorite of his father Jacob, but God, Almighty God, has some sort of favor on him and has given him a dream to share with everybody. I'm sure they did not want to hear this. And verse 6, And he said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. And behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my head. He's saying, hey, God gave me a dream, and I was the one who stood up, and you guys were all bowing before me. I'm the youngest of you, and you're all bowing to me. I'm sure that the brothers didn't like that. So it says, verse 8, Then his brother said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Let me just uh, share something with you really quickly. If you find yourself in a position of disagreeing with somebody and hating somebody, and that somebody is somebody with the Lord, that the Lord's hand is on that person, and you begin to be in, act in a negative way toward that person, it goes beyond the promise in Genesis 12, 3, I will bless them that bless thee, I will curse them that curse thee. You have bought yourself a pack of trouble. Unbelievable trouble. And this will bear out later on in the end of our story with Joseph and his brethren. Verse 9, Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me, and he related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. That's a very interesting statement. By the way, let me tell you something fascinating. Let me give you the interpretation of this dream. The sun represented Jacob and the moon represented the mothers. By the, the same lunar cycle is the same cycle of a woman. So they would associate it with the female. Then the 11 stars represented Joseph's 11 brothers. And he was saying that the sun, the moon, and the stars bowed down to me which is essentially the same thing as the first dream, but now it includes his father and his mother, his mothers. And even Jacob objected to this particular, are, are you, what? Are you saying I'm going to bow down to you? You know, that doesn't make sense whatsoever. But Jacob being the spiritual man he, he was, he said, wait a minute, let's just... Let's just wait on this for a little bit. Let's ponder it in our heart. Let's see, what, let's see what the Lord does here. And that's one of the evidences of his wisdom at this point. By the way, let me offer Jacob's wisdom to you. If you hear someone who comes up and they want to share with you a prophetic dream or a prophetic vision or they want to give you a prophetic assessment of what they are, give you a prophetic utterance or whatever, the scripture says, do not look down on those things, but examine everything carefully. It doesn't say that you have the right to dismiss it out of hand and call the guy a fool. You could get yourself in a tremendous amount of trouble with the Lord if it turns out that what he says is from the Lord. You do not want to be saying things contrary to the Lord. Let me, <laughs> I know that's a self-understood lesson. However, in this particular case, it's being illustrated for us. Now, let me bring you up to speed on <clears throat> something that's absolutely fascinating to me here in the world today. In our world, since uh, World War II, uh, Europe has banded together to form the European Union, an effort to defend themselves against uh, Soviet Russia, uh, economic cooperation, and so forth. And so they said, well, you know, European Union, we need to have our own banner. We need to have our own flag. So they commissioned this guy to design a flag 
for the original 12 nations that were part of the European Union. And he made a blue field and a circle of 12 stars. And he said, this is a direct quote from him, he said, I modeled the flag after Joseph's dream. So Joseph's dream is very apparent to us in the world today. It's the flag of the European Union. Now, what are the implications to that? Well, some of the implications are that the vast majority of the stars are probably of the house of Israel, and the Jews are the ones who fled out of Europe to go back to the land. So the house of Judah came out of Europe, and there's a whole bunch of people in the Western nations, Europe and in the United States, that is part of the house of Israel. They are part of the brothers of Joseph. And that's what that flag really symbolically represents. I have no dispute with that flag. I find all of the evidences in the world today, the biblical record and, and the intent of the flag designer, completely consistent with what the scripture says. And it's not shocking at all to me that they've made the flag that looks that way. And this is the meaning behind the flag. So he has these two dreams, and as you can imagine, they are not well received, and they're envious of them. And it comes down to this, verse, um, uh, verse 12. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. I want you to mark on your Bible that verse. That is the first verse of the story of redemption in the Bible. It is a father who is going to send his son to see to the welfare of the flock. That is the original redemption story. That's John 3.16. The father sends his son to save the brethren, to save the flock. And there's going along with that. Now, my version here, which is New American Standard, said, um, then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock. In the Hebrew, if you look in a scroll, there is no word for father there. That's not the correct word. Some versions will say the flock. Some versions will actually say Jacob's flock. But the word Jacob's not there. Father's is not there. Let me tell you what is there. The Hebrew word that is sitting there for the owner of the flock is the word aleph tav, which is simply pronounced et. The et flock, the olive tav flock. Uh, this is a direct reference to the Messiah. This is one of the places where the rabbis say, who or what is the olive tav we find in the scripture? And they're asking, who or what is the olive tav that's the owner of this flock? Now, they assume it's Jacob. No, uh, Jacob tends them. It belongs to the Messiah. Remember I shared with you about the Messiah's flock is like Jacob's flock. We have all of the black sheep, spotted sheep, speckled sheep. You know, we don't have the lily white ones the world thinks they are. You know, we, we have all the rejects of the world. We have the mavericks. We have the, the ones who come out of that other flock. And they're gathered up by Jacob and they're gathered up by the Lord. The Lord calls the humble and the lowly to himself, not the haughty not the rich, not the elites of the world. He calls those amongst us that are the black sheep and speckled sheep. Well, here is that flock, you know, those black speckled ones and so forth, and it's referred to as the olive tav flock. Now, go another step further as to what makes this scripture stand out. Above the letters olive tav, those two letters, there's another set of jots that the scribe put there. Remember I shared with you in the previous portion when um, Jacob is going up to Esau and they meet each other and Esau kisses him on the neck and the, for the word kissed, um, there's jots above those letters. Well, there's jots above these two letters and that connects back to those other jots and there's still going to be two more areas where jots are going to be found in the Torah, and they are linking 
these scriptures together because there's a whole nother teaching and a whole nother pattern that begins to emerge. This is one of the areas called the jots and tittles. And so when the Messiah said, think not that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And I tell you, not a jot or a tittle shall pass away until all is accomplished. So he's speaking in his day. There are things in the jots and the tittles still yet to happen that will be fulfilled before that day could ever possibly come. So this is an area in which that this verse now sets the stage for John 3.16. That is what Yeshua said to Nicodemus. You believe in my Father who sent me. And that's the core issue here. Jacob is going to send Joseph, a type for the Messiah, to see to his brethren. And, his, and guess what's going to happen? The brethren are going to reject him. They're going to throw him in a pit. And they're going to sell him uh, into slavery to get rid of him. But you see, the problem is they won't see him die. He, they know he comes out of the pit and he's still alive. And that's part of the story of Yeshua. Yeshua came amongst his brethren, exactly as prophesied. He's rejected by his brethren. They kill him. They put him in a pit. They bury him. But he comes out of that burial pit. He comes out of that grave, and they know he didn't die. They know he went somewhere else, and he's still alive. But they don't care. And that will be the same story here of Joseph's brethren. They will know they will have a story that he died. They will project that he's died to Jacob, their father. But, but he, they know he didn't die. They, he went somewhere and they don't care. And he was, he's, this is a story of redemption. And it's amazing to me that the rabbis say this is the first verse of the story of redemption. And, in, and that's the reason why in the Passover, when we have the Passover Seder and we come to the cup of instruction... And the first thing we do to instruct our children about the story of the Passover, guess where we start? Right here at Genesis 37, verse 12, that Jacob sent Joseph because Joseph becomes the first slave of Egypt. And all the rest of the family will ultimately become enslaved in Egypt. But Joseph is the first one who is enslaved. And so that's the part of the story of redemption. Those who are enslaved are set free. They're redeemed out of slavery. It goes on to say, verse 13, And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said, I will go. Then he said, Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and to the welfare of the flock, and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Now, this is another very intriguing place. This is another place where the sowed level, the esoteric and the mysterious level of the scripture appears. And it has to do with the valley of Hebron. Hebron is a mountain. There is no valley of Hebron. There is no such thing. The actual Hebrew word there is the word emek, E-M-E-K, emek. And emek can mean valley, and that's the way people usually translate it. It can, in place you go driving around Israel, uh, you will find different road signs, and I've seen a road sign that says emek, Sarah, you know, the Valley of Sarah, you know, and, and so forth. And those are, those are valleys. Those are different areas in the land, uh, a way to describe the land. And so they use the word in that same manner, but there's another meaning to the word mech, and it's the word mystery. Now, how would you get mystery and valley to ever work together? Well, it has to do with this. Let's say that you're up on the top of, a, say, a mountain, and you look down into this valley, and as you look down into it, because of the distance and so forth and the trees and so forth, the valley becomes hidden. You can't see what's in the valley. You, you know there's a valley there. You can see the whole shape of the valley, but you don't know what's in the valley. So there's a mystery about what's in the valley. 
And to find out, you have to go down into the valley to see what is there. And even though you're on a mountain, can see all these things. And that is what is being announced here, that there's a mystery at Hebron that's associated with this story. And what is the mystery? The redemption. The story of redemption. This was the flag that said there's something far greater taking place here. And it's an excellent example of what we call the sowed level of the Torah. The mysterious, the esoteric uh, part that's hidden. And it takes a Torah teacher to point that out to you uh, and explain to you what is, we have this literal story going on, but there's a lot more, a lot more to the story um, as we learn about the Messiah and the work of God's redemption. And so he sent him, this is verse uh, 14, so he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. Now you remember Shechem, that's where um, Jacob and his sons first came into the land. So that, that's where they'd shepherded and and by the way, there wasn't any people up there near Shechem anymore because they'd been wiped out. And so the pasture lands up there were available for the sons of Israel to go. And they were familiar with that land because they'd temporarily lived there before they killed all the men of Shechem. Um, and so they go up there to pasture. Um, and so he's told to go there. And so he proceeds now uh, to go there. And verse 15, and a man uh, found him there in Shechem. And behold, he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, What are you looking for? And he said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, They have moved from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And so Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Dothan means two pits. That's when it's a place of pits. Um, for it. <clears throat> Actually, it's also near an area not too far from a place called Zipporah. And Zipporah and that area is a very dangerous land to shepherd flocks. It, they have lots of grass, they have lots of stuff. However, that part of the land is well known for the following of these sinkholes and these holes suddenly drop out. You can have an animal come walking along and all of a sudden the sinkhole drops and you lose the animal, it just buries them. Um, and so it was a dangerous ground to go through. People usually avoided it, although there was very good vegetation for feeding animals uh, for it. But you have to be careful when you go out. And to this day, that is still a dangerous land for putting animals onto. And they're extremely careful, and they have to do intensive um, farming there by enclosing the area of safe ground for the animals to be uh, pastured in that area. And so he's told to go there. Now, we got to stop and ask this question, though. Who's this guy? Who's this man he meets at Shechem and tells him and directs him correctly to go find the flock? Remember the man that Jacob ended up wrestling with? I have a feeling that this is this same man again because he's giving precisely what Joseph needs to complete what his father's asked him to do. And he has a very profound um, thing here having to do with it. And this is an excellent example of what we call the Remez level of the Torah. It's hinting at that the Messiah God is involved in this story, of which, of course, he is. Um, I think that when we get to the kingdom, it's going to be very fascinating to find out exactly how all this happened and exactly who this man was and, and uh, so forth. There's some others in the biblical record. It's going to be very fascinating to find out who was that person that was out there. And I'm not going to be shocked we find out, well, that was the Messiah who had stepped in there for a moment to help them out. So he's now going to be making his trip over to Dothan, verse 18. And so he makes his way to Dothan. And when they saw, this is the brothers, saw him from a distance. And before he came to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say, a wild beast devoured him. 
then let us see what will become of his dreams. In other words, they were, wanted to kill those dreams. They did not want there to be the possibility that they would ever bow down to him whatsoever. They resented that, resented him, and so they have this plot to do it. The question is, at this point, who do we think actually suggested the death? I mean, there's, there's 11 brothers there. Who, which one is the one that came up with You remember the violence of Simeon and Levi? It's not Levi this time, it's Simeon. And we know that because later on, Simeon is going to be imprisoned by himself in Egypt by Joseph. They don't know it's Joseph. He's going to be in prison, and all the brothers are going to say, oh my God, God has found this out. He knew who spoke what, and now he's put the more severe punishment on Simeon, calling for the death of their brother. I'll just uh, tell you that little quick mystery here real quick. But verse 21, but Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Well, Reuben's supposed to do that. Reuben is the oldest brother. He's supposed to be looking out for his little brother. And so he steps in. He says, no, no, we can't kill him. He overcomes the argument of Simeon. He says, we'll we'll do something, but we're not going to kill him. And so they decide at that point they're going to put him in a pit and hold him. And Reuben is planning on uh, maybe separately, secretly, that he'll rescue Joseph uh, again. Maybe the brothers will leave him there and then Reuben will come back and save him. That was his plot. That was his idea that Reuben would deliver Joseph in the future. Um, Verse 22, Reuben further said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit that is here in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him that he might rescue him out of his hands to restore to his father. So it came about when Joseph reached his brother's that they stripped Joseph in of his tunic and the very colored tunic that was on him. And they took him and threw him in the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. You know what that also means? The pit was full of snakes. Remember that famous scene of, of uh, uh, Indiana Jones where he looks down and he goes, oh, snakes, I, I, I don't like snakes. These pits are famous for having snakes in them. Uh, and to this day, in the land of Israel, these pits have, when they're dry and they don't have water in them, the snakes get trapped in there and they make nests. And so but you'll find a bunch of snakes in each one of these things. So can you imagine being thrown in a pit? You know, your brothers are threatening your life, but you're thrown in a pit with a bunch of snakes. So they put him in there to terrorize him. Um, Verse 25, then they sat down and ate a meal and they raised, um, uh, they raised their eyes and looked and behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming with, uh, from Gilead uh, with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh and on their way to bring them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay uh, our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. Then some Midianite trainers passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they bought, brought Joseph into Egypt. By the way, um, each of the only 10 brothers are going to get these coins. Why 20? Uh, because Reuben is not present at this time. Reuben apparently stepped away. He's not part of the council of Solomon. Remember, Reuben's plan is to come back and rescue Joseph and return him to his father. However, Reuben is not present, so the other 10 brothers decide on, and each one of them gets two shekels or two pieces of silver. Uh, for it. If you remember, the Messiah will be traded for 30 pieces of silver. Um, And the 20 is, and why was it 20 that was the agreed price? That's the price of a small uh, sacrifice that still needs to grow a little bit. 
Um, 30 is the price of a female sacrifice. 40 is the price of a full male sacrifice. 20 is for a kid, a, you know, a youngin, uh, for it. The, uh, so they, they value him at the smallest level. Um, essentially, each of the brothers got enough silver to basically pay for a pair of sandals. And it is understood that in history that the brothers only valued um, Joseph for the price of a pair of sandals. Now, I mention that because John the Baptist, when he's making reference to the Messiah that will be coming, he said, I'm not worthy to unlatch his sandal. And it ties that statement back to the story of redemption, which is back here in Genesis. Another little connection to it. And fascinatingly enough, it's Judah who says, well, let's just sell him. Let's make, make a few shekels off of this. So Simeon called for his death. Reuben wanted to save him, but didn't. And Judah is the one who said, let's sell him. And as a result, those are going to be the key players between Simeon and Judah that will be key players involved in when Joseph is able to deal with his brothers later while he's down in Egypt. So at that point, you know, he's taken off to Egypt. And uh, there is this now connection between Joseph and Judah that begins to take specific shape here in this story. Um, Here's what they decided to do. Uh, they got to go back and they got to have some kind of story for Jacob. They, you know, Joseph came out and we got to have a story. So if we say, well, we found Joseph and he died, well, Jacob's going to say, well, bring his body back so that I can bury him properly. So they got to find a way to get rid of his body so Jacob's not sending them out to go get the body. So they say, okay, well, we'll say that a wild beast has taken him, and that's how he actually died. He didn't die at the hand of anyone. He died, but he died at the hand of a wild beast. And you don't have to go looking for him because the wild beast ate him. So there's no need to go look for his body. And so they take his tunic, and they take the blood of an animal, and they smear it all over it, and they rip the tunic to shreds. They tear it up. So it looks like a wild beast had attacked him and tore his clothes and, and, and tore into him. And they bring that back uh, to, uh, bring that back to Jacob. And he, uh, it's, it's Judah who's the one um, that, had, that presents this to us. Let me show you, um, take you to verse, um, verse 28 about this. Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments. He returned to his brothers, and they said, The boy is not there as for me. What am I to do? So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered uh, a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored, and they sent the very colored Truman and brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it as to whether or not it's your son's tunic or not. They didn't actually say, your son is dead. They said, hey, we found this tunic. Uh, does that, does, do you recognize that? And so Jacob examines it. Verse 33, he said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Now, I want you to put yourself in the, in the shoes of Jacob at that moment. He just learns that his beloved son, the offspring of his beloved Rachel, is dead and has suffered a horrific death. Well, as a matter of fact, it really hurt Joseph. It hurt him bad. From this point on, he will be extremely sad and grieving tremendously from this. And the harm that these brothers have done to their father is unspeakable. It's one thing of how they've rejected their brother, but now the harm is now carried over to their father. I don't think they thought this through very well. 
I think they thought, hey, we'll solve the Joseph problem. We'll just get rid of him. But they forgot that if you do that, you're going to have you're going to have a major problem with the father. And their idea was just to get the father to accept the story so they wouldn't have to go out looking for him and trying to bring him back or explain his death. They decided to deceive Joseph, or rather deceive Jacob and convince him that the wild beast tore him up and probably ate him. So there's no need to go looking for him. Um, Verse 34, so Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to the grave, Sheol, in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Now, uh, I want you to take note of here that this was very, very deep grief for Jacob. And there was no way that anybody could comfort him for it. So for now, for the next several years, while Joseph is down to Egypt, and before Jacob gets to find out about Joseph that he's still alive, he's going to be in deep, deep grief. And by the way, let me just tell you, for those of you who have experienced deep, deep grief, I have no difficulty understanding how this works. None whatsoever. A lot of people think, oh, you get over grieving after a time. Not with some. Depending on how deep the love was, that's how deep the grief will be. Uh, and there are certain people who, in fact, there are couples uh, who will lose one of the other spouse and it just takes their life down. It just takes them to the grave, slowly takes them to the grave. They're, they're filled with so much grief that it just sucks the life out of them. And here's Joseph. His health is going to start going downhill um, at this point because of the loss of Joseph and the grief that he's going through. Now, our story shifts here in chapter 38 and begins to uh, talk about um, a couple of things that's going to happen. The story is going to be about Judah, and the story is going to be about Joseph. Judah is how he's going to live uh, further uh, before he finds out about Joseph. And then Joseph, the story about him going down to Egypt, being in Potiphar's house, what's going to happen to him, and eventually how he'll be called out to interpret some dreams for Pharaoh. But let's talk about this story with Judah and Tamar. Judah had two sons, and both of these sons, are you ready for this? Were killed by the Lord, and killed by the Lord for misbehavior. And it had to do with Tamar. Uh, the first son married Tamar, and, and the, the Lord ended up killing him for his behavior toward Tamar. Now the other brother was supposed to step in and, and make children for her, under, so that his brother would raise up sons. He refuses, and because he refuses, the Lord kills him. So all of a sudden, Tamar still doesn't have a husband, and, uh, and Jacob's scared to death of this woman marrying any more of his sons because he's already lost two sons to it. So Tamar is living now in his house. He's overseeing her, and... Um, uh, and he's trying to figure out what he's going to be doing here. Well, the story shifts that Tamar decides that she's going to figure out a way uh, where that she will have sons under this household. And so she dresses up in the role of a harlot, and a, a temple harlot, and she positions herself at a, a particular part on the journey where she knows that her uh, father-in-law, Judah, is going to be traveling to go do some business. And so here's this businessman, Judah, who's on the trip, and he gets tempted by this temple harlot, and um, the uh, he offers to pay her. He's tempted by her harlotry. He wants to enter in with her. She agrees, but they have to agree on the price. And the price that she demands is that she wants certain personal items of him until such time as that he brings her back a goat, you know, for payment. Well, um, 
when they do finish their business, they go and take the goat back and they can't find her. And so all of a sudden, Judah is out these key personal items. Uh, his, I believe it's his staff and his signet stuff and, and things like that. And, um, and then suddenly Tamar turns out to be pregnant. Well, the word comes out, Tamar is now pregnant. She's not married. Nobody's gone in with her. Uh, she's played the role of a harlot. She's gone off someplace else and done what she's done. And Judah is going to hold her to account for this. Um, and verse 24, it says the following. Now it came about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Let's judge her right off the bat. <clears throat> it, was, it was while she was being brought out that she sent <clears throat> to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And I am the child by the man who, to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I. Now, what is really going on here? Remember, Judah was the one who went up to his father with the tunic and said, do you recognize these? And he's going to pay some poetic justice here. This is now being done to him. Tamar has taken his things to do. You might want to examine this. Do you, do you know whose these are? Only this time in the case of Judah, it's his. And Judah immediately remembers what he did to his father. That he did exactly the same presentation to his father. And so he makes the statement, she is more righteous than I. Inasmuch as I did not give her my son Selah, and he did not have relations with her again. And it came about that time she was giving birth, that behold, there were twins in her womb. The, um, and Judah is the one who fathered the children for Tamar. It wasn't one of his sons. Um, and Judah now recognizes that the question that he posed to Jacob in, in chapter 37 and verse 32, this is now God has shown him something. And he suddenly realizes, I'm the one who sins, she has not. I refused her, my other son, because I thought he would die. I refused her, and she has figured out a way to raise up children. And she had two sons. Now, this is interesting about these two sons. Um, verse 27, And it came about at that time she was giving birth, that behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place that while she's giving birth, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about that as he drew back his hand, and behold, the other, the brother, his brother came out. And then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. And afterward his brother came forth, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. The, um, this is a tremendous um, future prophecy, the names of these two sons of Judah. Um, Perez, the name that means the, he who makes the breach. And then uh, the second one, Zerah, means the dawning of the day or the brightness of his coming. And the firstborn is the one who brings the dawning of the new day and the brightness of his coming. That's a, definitely about the Messiah. And the other one is about usurping the position of trying to appear to be the firstborn but not being because the one with the hand and the thread is the one giving that title. And um, to, to, we, to this day, I remember that we had a... Um, uh, some leaders in Israel with the name Perez, and all he ever did was make a breach in the land of Israel. Shimon Perez, um, he's the guy that orchestrated the Middle East peace accord with Israel and Rabin, and that peace accord, according to the prophecy, 
will be um, annulled by God because it doesn't support the Messiah. The Messiah will come and make his own agreement with Israel and the rest of the world, not the one that Perez has made. And so they seem to have played out the meaning of their names, even to this modern day uh, that we have here um, uh, in the Middle East. Now, the rest of chapter 39 deals with Jake, or excuse me, Joseph going down into Egypt and, and what transpired with his life, and it has to do with he's falsely accused, thrown into prison, and he meets the, the king's uh, cupbearer and bread maker, baker, and uh, he interprets some dreams for them. Uh, they go up before Pharaoh. One of them is killed. The other one lives. And then suddenly, but with that background, Pharaoh has dreams. And he has a couple of dreams, very powerful dreams. And so he's trying to find somebody to interpret the dreams that will convince him of the dreams. And since he can't find any of the wise men who can interpret the dream for him, why, I believe it's his cupbearer who says, wait a minute, I know a guy. I was down in prison with this guy. And this guy, he interpreted our dreams. And exactly as he said, that's exactly what happened between the baker and myself. So Pharaoh says, well, bring him up. I, I want to... I want to talk to him. I want to see if he can interpret the dream for me. And uh, the, um, uh, he proceeds to bring him up. He cleans him up and, and uh, so forth. And let me take you to, um, let me take you to chapter 40. And let's begin here at verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me. And on the vine there were three branches, and as it was budding, its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup before Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to me, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you from your office, Restore you to your office, and you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom, which you were the cupbearer. Only keep one in mind when it goes well with you, and please do not uh, do me a kindness and be by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that they should have put me into the dungeon. When the cupbearer saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread. And he goes on to explain that vision. And he talks about in three, verse 19, and within the three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree and birds will eat. In other words, that was the bread maker, the baker. Thus, all of this happened on the third day, and it all began to take shape. Um, in the next week's portion, we are going to have Joseph coming up out of the, um, out of the dungeon and out of the prison that Pharaoh had him in uh, because of his interpretation of dreams. Now, let's summarize just for a moment before we go further. There's a lot of information in this portion that talks about Joseph having dreams, trying to understand what the dreams mean. Uh, the brothers can understand what the dreams mean, but they don't like what the results of it are. Now he's down here in Egypt. Other people are having dreams, and Joseph is now interpreting the dreams. And we're going to have uh, Joseph interpret Pharaoh's dream here very soon. He's, he's going to be called up to interpret his two dreams that he has. There's some very, very important principles that are going to come out that have to do with dreams. Um, and it, it, let me just give you the quick summary on this, and you'll see this play out in our next portion. There's a basic principle of the Torah which says you cannot call anything the truth without the evidence of two or three. And that is particularly true in the case of having a dream or a vision. You have to have two elements that coincide. You have to have one that confirms the first one. And then you can come up with a proper interpretation. And as Joseph will say, 
that when you see the two elements, that means that this dream has come from the Lord. It's truth. It's established by Him. If you have a single dream, I don't care how colorful it is, it might be that you had too much garlic in your spaghetti sauce the night before when you had spaghetti. Who knows, you know, what caused the dream. Maybe you got cold and you had a dream, whatever the case may be. But dreams that come from God, and there are such things, there is going to be a dual element. I've had a lot of people over the course of my ministry, they write me a letter or drop me an email and they say, hey, I've had a dream and here's what happened and they want me to interpret it. Well, I say, is that, is that all? You just had the one dream? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, call me when you have the second dream. And where am I getting that from? I'm getting that from the lessons and the spiritual lessons that we learn from Joseph about how to deal with dreams. Joseph had a reputation of being able to divine things. He would understand, you know, what God was going to do through the visions and dreams that other people had. So he was known as having this power. And by the way, this will help him tremendously in his office um, by getting the people of Egypt to believe when he says there's going to be seven years of famine, seven years of abundance, then seven years of famine, to get them to work and store grain so they can make it through the famine because they perceive him as having a certain power from God to be able to divine these things. I mention this because the connection is going to come back to Benjamin here very shortly, and it's going to have to do with the key element of, of Joseph being revealed to his brothers and being restored to his brothers is going to do with a cup that belongs to Joseph which is his cup of divination. He has a cup that serves as a symbol of his authority and his power. Now I'll save it for later on to tell you how does this foreshadow the Messiah because it's a very powerful word picture that speaks to the Messiah. All right, we will save that for our upcoming Torah portions. I love teaching the book of Genesis and the story of our fathers and ancestors and how they foreshadow so many things for us and for the Messiah, for our redemption. And it's always a delight every time I teach this book. I'm always excited about doing it. I hope you're getting a blessing from the teaching this year. So let me end with Shabbat Shalom, and I'll see you again next Shabbat as we look further into the portion called Miketz. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you.